Hello, and welcome to Dyson's Debrief. My name is Jake Dyson, and every month I'll be conducting an interview with a different scholar, academic, or public intellectual. For my first conversation, I'm delighted to share a conversation that I had with Dr. Marcia Chaplin. Dr. Chaplin is a professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University. She is the author of several books, the most recent of which is called Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. In it, Dr. Chatlin deftly explores the relationship between the fast food industry, civil rights leaders, and the pursuit of racial and social justice. It was an absolute honor to have Dr. Chatlin on the show. And without further ado, let's dive in. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Well, I think just to get started, thank you again so much for being here with me. And I really enjoyed reading Franchise, found it super fascinating. And I guess just to begin, I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about what drew you to the topic in the first place. And I think uh, in particular, there was a line in a recent interview you gave to NPR uh, where you said you were wrestling with what it meant for McDonald's to, quote, have facilitated your first contact with African-American history, end quote. I was just wondering if you could expand on that a little bit, like what kind of questions led you to this topic? Yeah, you know, so McDonald's was a very present part of my childhood and my early adulthood. Just, it was just always around. And the reason why I wrote this book was I started to think more and more critically, not only about the fast food industry, but the ways that talking about fast food consumption became a proxy for what I perceived as some really racist and kind of problematic framings about um, families and communities. And so what I mean by that is when I was in graduate school, I had um, become more interested in like food justice movements, um, wanting to be part of conversations where people were trying to deal with gaps in access to fresh and healthy food and nutrition. And what I found was that there was this really insulting tone about people feeding their children fast food or people consuming fast food as if fast food is never a practical or um, reasonable approach to nourishing one's body in light of all of the other things that a family or a community has to manage. And so as I thought more and more fast food, I thought about the ways that growing up in Chicago, fast food was so present, particularly McDonald's is so pre present in Black communities in experiences that had nothing to do with the food. And so in the book, I talk about the fact that, you know, when I was in high school, I participated in a quiz bowl show and the prizes were paid for by a local McDonald's um, operators association and how often um, Black McDonald's operators were part of the philanthropic and community building work in Chicago. And I found that this was the case in other cities. And so I started to think really um, carefully about this role that McDonald's plays in Black communities and how it's a reflection of different types of divestment that have happened to Black communities uh, since the late 1960s. And just out of curiosity, when would, when would you say that sort of pivot in tone do you think happened in terms of how people talked about McDonald's, and especially as it related to African-American communities? I mean, did it happen sort of with the rise of the nutrition movement? I think it really um, started to be something that I noticed. And I think the discourse um, started to expand in the late 80s and early 90s when the Surgeon General was try starting to 
sound the alarm about cholesterol and saturated fats. And, you know, when I was a kid, people didn't really judge parents for letting their kids eat McDonald's, even though it was considered, I guess, junk food or fast food. There wasn't that kind of same cultural weight about kids eating at McDonald's. I think that emerged a little bit later. And I think what happened was when there were more research studies coming out of, you know, like the Centers for Disease Control about the problems of obesity and hypertension and diabetes, a lot of these things were really racialized and a lot of it was connected to the consumption of fast food. And so then the eating of fast food became kind of um, a symbol of a certain class position and a certain kind of race position. And that, you know, people were always using that as evidence that some communities or some people were not, you know, as mindful or as, you know, careful in how they fed their families or how they treated their own bodies. And one thing also I want to kind of touch back on is just the idea of franchising as a whole. And that was something I found really fascinating in the book. And it hadn't, wasn't something I'd given a lot of thought to before, just kind of franchising as an economic model. And I found it interesting. I mean, in the book, you kind of gave a brief history saying it had derived in some ways from the Catholic church and then up through the ages, Coca-Cola kind of offered a little bit of a prototype. And it's interesting you say about black franchisees kind of being involved in these philanthropic efforts in the community. Does it seem like there was a sort of tension in franchise the franchising model and the franchises specifically where on one hand they're kind of trying to get involved in the communities and like involved in these philanthropic efforts on the other hand they're being driven by the demands of profit of like the overall corporation and there was a quote by ellen meekins wood that I kind of was in my head as i was reading it where she said there was always a quote conflict between the needs of people and the requirements of profits and i was wondering what sort of tensions like that you saw, especially for Black franchisees trying to both serve their communities, but also serve the overall McDonald's corporation? Yeah, so there's a long tradition of African-American business owners, in many ways, being the unelected kind of presence in Black America, negotiating for power, trying to secure the needs of a community, and a real kind of... um, dependence on these dynamics for business owner, owners to consolidate power and sometimes for people in positions of authority to stave off you know, greater demands for equality. And so that precarious relationship is borne out in franchising because franchising is this weird business model where someone else like makes all the rules and collects a portion of the profit, but you as the franchise owner, you're doing a lot of work. And franchising is so American to me because It's all about the promises that you can become like a multimillionaire just by following this kind of like blueprint. And so franchising in the late 1960s becomes one of the few accessible, attainable routes for Black enterprise um, in a moment in which there's a call for Black businesses and there's a lot of excitement about Black-owned businesses, but there is still discrimination in lending. And it's still really, really hard for Black-owned businesses to survive. And so when the fast food industry opens up more avenues to franchising for African-Americans, they're opening up a possibility to become quite financially successful. But that financial success, everyone understands that it can't happen in a vacuum. That connection to community, 
making sure that you're present in places that are losing resources, like all of this becomes really important in creating the formula for, for black business in the late 60s and early 70s. And so that tension is that on one hand, opening businesses doesn't solve a lot of the problems that animated the civil unrest of the period. Um, a lot of African-Americans were protesting conditions that had nothing to do with business, um, like police brutality and the lack of resources you know, for jobs and for opportunity for people. But on the other hand, there was a great sense of pride and a sense of um, like excitement that African-American owned businesses could be a possibility in community. And that's why there's a really like wide range of responses to McDonald's presence in black communities, because, you know, the question was always at the heart of this issue, like, is a black franchise McDonald's actually a black owned business? And does it really make a difference in black communities? One kind of force that interested me in terms of navigating those tensions were the associations that uh, African-American franchise owners would form. I mean, chief among them, probably the uh, National Black McDonald's Operators Association and it's all its local chapters. But I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about how those associations worked and sort of what they gave to their members or kind of the impetus for forming them. Yeah, so the National Black McDonald's Operators Association, which still exists today, was a network of um, black franchisees who were really connected by this idea that they knew that they were outliers within the system of McDonald's franchising they felt very aware that their successes um, wouldn't just be their own. It would either create more opportunities for other African-Americans to franchise. And a lot of the communities in which they operated their businesses were, communi were communities of high need. And they knew that their financial success would be you know, part of what was going to be used to try to enhance that community. So they had a lot of pressure and they often were in situations where the restaurants that they were managing were restaurants that um, white franchise owners no longer wanted to manage because they were in neighborhoods that were growing predominantly black. And they often got stores that were either, you know, badly bruised in uprisings or on the older side. And they had to really kind of put their heads together to see how they were going to figure this out. And that's what led to the National Black McDonald's Operators Association because it gave them a collective voice and some type of leverage to try to um, get McDonald's to not only recognize their efforts, but also recognize their consumer base as one where advertising should be directed to and resources should be invested in and expanding that market. And so in a lot of ways, they were in that kind of tradition of the self-help affinity groups that are trying to make a case for respecting their presence. And does the, does the organization, I mean, you still, you said it's around today still, does it have much of a presence in terms of interacting with the McDonald's Corporation? I mean, I know that there's the lawsuit in Chicago, I believe, uh, right now, where 50 African-American executives are suing McDonald's for many of the same reasons you, you discuss in your book. And is it, is the organization still involved with that? Yeah, so the National Black McDonald's Operators Association is quite influential, and they have local branches in, you know, cities across the country. And they really do kind of um, serve this dual purpose. They support each other and they make sure that McDonald's respects their presence. And they also organize their, their leverage to try to get McDonald's to make some commitments. And this recent lawsuit is an example 
and this is on behalf of franchise owners, there is another lawsuit in which two McDonald's executives are suing for racial discrimination, but the lawsuit that you referenced has 52 people involved. Wow. And these franchise owners are saying like, there are a series of systemic practices within McDonald's that makes it really hard for African-Americans to be as successful as their white counterparts. And the types of accusations that people were making about McDonald's in the 70s and 80s that I write about in my book, yeah. um, some people argue that they're still happening. And so whether it's restricting African-Americans from only doing business in certain neighborhoods to limiting their opportunity to expand their portfolio with more franchise restaurants, this um, pervasive question of what does it mean to have both like this incredible opportunity to like make money and become very successful, but also know that um, that you can't that you can't fully access all the possibilities within a system. Like I was saying, I was seeing the lawsuit and kind of like what exactly it was revolving around, and it really just felt like there were sentences ripped right out right from your book, and so it was sad, I think, for me to see that some of those issues have not perhaps gone away as much as people would hope they had. I was also kind of interested shifting from the part of the franchisees to community organizations, because as you said, the response to McDonald's in Black communities across the country was incredibly varied, and uh, I think there were one of the most fascinating things I found from your book was the various kind of case models you gave of fights against McDonald's. And I was wondering, kind of looking at different case models, what you think separated the more successful ones from other ones that ended up maybe not being quite as successful? Like, where did you see examples of successful economic pressures being put on McDonald's? Yeah, I think this is an interesting question because there's so many different kind of questions that are being asked of McDonald's in these different cities. So in Chicago, where the first Black McDonald's franchise was opened, there was a real sense that this could be a vehicle for economic redevelopment. And I think because at that point, Chicago had been um, the site of um, McDonald's headquarters, and then it went out to the suburbs, and it most recently moved back to the city. But I think it was a brand that Chicagoans knew a little bit better. And so when um, you know a black franchise McDonald's came onto the south side of Chicago, people were genuinely excited, and I think they had a very kind of positive look at McDonald's. But you know, as McDonald's expanded in other parts of Chicago, I don't write about it in the book, but there was some res resistance to it. And so, you know, in Cleveland, the question of McDonald's wasn't a kind of pro or anti fast food. And it was in the Black community, but the question is, should white franchise owners profit so handily off of um, Black dollars? And so it was a question about control, controlling the types of businesses that come into a community and who should actually be at the helm of it and what does it represent. But, you know, in the case of Portland, you know, people were not... Um, arguing about whether there should be Black franchise owners, but in Portland, people felt like McDonald's should at least act in a way that was respectful of the Black community in which it was situated. And so, you know, McDonald's is a place where the police would congregate and apprehend suspects, and then they would um, also, you know, surveil people from McDonald's. And there was this whole contention with a local McDonald's where they wouldn't participate in the free breakfast program for children. And so, that was a question of like, what kind of neighbor you're going to be. And then in Philadelphia, there was a anti-McDonald's protest that was really not so much about McDonald's itself because I don't think the people involved in it actually 
had a anti-fast food position, but they just wanted to be able to determine what came into their community. It was again about this control about what resources do we really need and what resources are superfluous. And so I think that at each turn, McDonald's becomes a real um, object lesson in what black communities are identifying as important to them and whether people are actually listening. And how, how responsive do you think McDonald's was to these sort of, I don't know, questions, arguments about who should stand to profit from McDonald's and African-American communities? I mean, I, I don't know, maybe you could say they weren't responsive at all considering these issues are still cropping up today, but, I, or was it kind of a case by case basis? Like, I think McDonald's very early on, um, and this is when Cleveland kind of boycotted McDonald's and kind of turned on them, they, they took a position that we could not concede to community demands. That if we start kind of bending to what communities want, we're going to lose our power. And so what they did was they engaged in some level of conversation, but they always tried to find a way to have an upper hand in determining kind of what the future was going to look like for McDonald's and black communities. But one of the things that they learned very quickly is how to co-opt the language of empowerment, how to give people a sense that McDonald's was on their side in community as a way to try to shelter themselves from criticism. And one of the things that happened um, in the case of Cleveland is when Cleveland is starting to question, you know, whether or not they're being economically exploitative, McDonald's talks about all of the money they donated to groups like the United Negro College Fund and the NAACP, instead of really confronting this question of who is the um, driver of the economic possibilities of a community. And so I think that McDonald's knew how to engage in some meetings about the issue. They kept tabs on these issues, but they were more likely to bend to the will of their franchisees who were making the money rather than communities that were making demands. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And also that David David Hill and uh, Mr. Hilliard's story, I'm, I'm blanking on his first isn't name. It, right isn't now. it bananas? It's wild, yes. Ernest Hilliard, yeah. And you, you also mentioned the uh, NWACP. And another thing that interested me from the book, I mean, so much, but uh, another thing that interested me was the emergence kind of late or late entry of different civil rights organizations in the country into sort of this fight. Um, and you talk about the sort of the transition from civil rights to civil rights and the kind of diverging paths that some civil rights leaders took. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about how these sorts of organizations on a kind of national level got involved. Yeah, so, you know, after Martin Luther King's assassination in 1968, the question of like, what would be the directions of civil rights organizations was front and center in the minds of a lot of people who saw this as an opportunity for um, a pivot into questions of how are we going to create um, economic independence for African-Americans? How do we create an economic structure we can live under? And I think some of it was a response to the ideologies of the moment of the late 60s. Some of it I think was out of exhaustion for all of the suffering people had experienced and all of the trauma of loss that came with the movement. But also the White House, the Nixon White House was making it very um, seductive for people who were engaged in agitating for the state to protect civil rights to start thinking about economic opportunity. And so people like Jesse Jackson 
who was in charge of Operation Breadbasket, which was an extension of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, he was on that bandwagon very early. He says economic boycott and negotiation for jobs and for more economic opportunities, what we should be doing. You know, the NAACP had long been involved in questions of justice and fairness in the law. And into the 1970s, they were becoming mediators for the types of conflicts that Black civil rights organizations would have with corporations, and they were benefiting from that. And, you know, um, you know, for groups like the Urban League or CORE, they became more and more involved in these economic programs where federal grants could be used on the local level to create businesses that were supposed to reinvest in communities or create these different economic adventure, uh, ventures. And so it seems like, you know, this period of time is one in which people perhaps are infused with a level of pragmatism. Um, some might say a little bit of cynicism, but I think that after going through a period of time where there was so much structural change and there were so many laws that were passed that were supposed to preserve civil rights, and then the reality of them, of it, it doesn't come into fruition. I understand why people thought that maybe the pivot towards economic development and business would actually secure some gains. Oh, interesting. Uh, another sort of I mean, fascinating figure, book was full of them, is Tom Burrell. Am I pronouncing that name correctly? Uh, Burrell. Burrell. Burrell, yeah, and the Burrell Communications Group. And especially the work I mean, he did for McDonald's. And the fact that McDonald's is responsible for bringing I mean, many images from African-American communities to the rest of America in terms of things like the dance competitions or the double Dutch commercial from the 80s or things that you talk about in the book. But at the same time, I mean, these images were packaged in a commodified way. I mean, they were meant to sell Big Macs and Quarter Pounders. So I don't know. I thought maybe I found some of the same sort of tensions as I saw in the franchises in that. Where like, what did it mean for these images to be used for the purpose of profits and um, selling McDonald's foods, but at the same time, I don't know, I guess I'm just interested if you could speak a little bit more into, I'm here rambling here, it, speak a little bit to Burrell's contributions to McDonald's and its history and kind of the messaging that it put out. So Burrell Communications is really important in creating some of the conventions that are still used today to try to reach Black voters. And that's, you know, creating um, this sense of, you know, community, creating representation of images that people wanted to see because so much of the commercial marketplace had been so exclusionary to African-Americans, not just in the era of Jim Crow and separate but equal service, but in the very negative representations of black people in advertising. And so Burrell Communications provided just a different way of looking into, um, you know, a, di a different way into looking into the lens of what black life was like and it also was really important, and this is something that I don't talk about as much in the book, but I wish that I had made this point that this created an incredible growth opportunity for people, for Black creatives, singers, um, you know, uh, hairstylists, set designers, you know, costumers, in addition to providing, you know, this other opportunity for, um, for you know, Black celebrities to also kind of get another platform. And these things were really important. And so in one way, they had this incredible impact on the nature of creative arts and as well as trying to reset how major companies were gonna communicate with African-Americans. And again, there is some discomfort because you know, it's, it feels very cynical that this is all being done to sell, you know, um, sell a bunch of stuff mm -hmm. to people. 
But I want to make sure that, you know, consumer citizenship, as much as it's uh, problematic, is important to some people. And being left out of those channels of belonging means something, even if it's problematic, and even though capitalism can sometimes be a problem. Um, you know, this, this type of stuff actually worked because it actually meant something. And so I think Burrell Communications were able to unlock a world that, um, you know, people wanted to see. And in terms of creating spaces for, I mean, you said everything from hair, hair, uh, hair design, costume, set design, like creating these images. Do you mean in terms of creating the ads and creating things like that? Yeah, the ads and the materials involved and, you know, the ephemera of it. And is that, do you think that differs from things that McDonald's, for instance, McDonald's right now is doing the partnership with Travis Scott, I believe it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that, I mean, how do you think, how do you see those as different sort of entities or do you? Um, you know, it's part of that long tradition of trying to do that outreach. It's cringy to watch. And I think back in the 70s, some of it was a little cringy, but I think part of it is this idea that if you have a consumer base that you are trying to communicate with, what is the kind of fastest route of trying to say, this is who we are? And I think for them, you know, it's, it's these types of partnerships. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think that no matter how much McDonald's, you know, panders to Black customers, and no matter how much these initiatives stand, the fundamental basis in their presence and community will always be something that is, you know, fodder for criticism, that this doesn't necessarily resolve the kind of issues and tensions that, you know, that come up. No, that makes sense. And I guess, uh, you know, shifting to modern day, I was wondering what sort of things you see as the current tensions and, uh, you know, focal points for ongoing disputes with McDonald's there are today. I mean, we talked about the lawsuit already, but I was thinking also, you know, minimum wage, or I, I was reading in the New Yorker recently that uh, there was a McDonald's worker in Chicago, uh, Carlos de Leon, who was suing McDonald's over COVID conditions and working conditions. Yeah. So I think a lot of things are happening right now. I think that McDonald's has kind of been in free fall for about a quarter of a century because the market for accessible and re relatively cheap fast food has just expanded. There's just more things to eat than there was before. You know, I think the other issue is that, you know, McDonald's, some argued, and I think this is true, didn't invest in kind of cultivating Black franchise ownership um, for a very long time. And that the drop in the numbers of Black franchise owners is a reflection of a kind of changing its strategy away from Black consumers. Um, but I think the real source of the tension is the condition of workers. The fact that franchises are on the hooks for a lot of things like uh, personal protective equipment, um, the fact that the fight for 15 has really raised consciousness about just how low wages McDonald's pays and offers. And I think that, you know, after the George Floyd summer, when McDonald's is tweeting out Black Lives Matter, like, I think it just, it always rings hollow because they have so many um, employees of color, black and brown employees who are not having the opportunity to, you know, kind of have fair wages and paid sick leave and all of these other things that are really important for a healthy workplace. And do they, I mean, that makes complete sense. And I was wondering how you see kind of the role of McDonald's workers themselves, how they view the job and how they view kind of the industry 
has that changed much? Because I know you kind of chart in the book a little bit how McDonald's goes from being presented as this sort of respectable kind of stepping stone to higher, you know, higher advancement to later like more criticisms and more cynicisms about the nature of the labor. Yeah, I mean, um, I think the issue is just that, you know, when wages are flattened over such a period of time, that a job that could have been a stepping stone into a pretty okay, you know, um, rate of pay to help families and communities is no longer that, right? It's poverty wages. So I think it's that issue. I think the skyrocketing costs of healthcare access, the skyrocketing costs of childcare, like, you know, there was a period of time where you could suggest that a fast food job was a stepping stone or at least a sustainable, um, you know, wage to provide in an era of deep unemployment, but then the wages never really went up and the conditions never really improved and the volume of work, um, even with automation increased. And so I think the big issue there is the fact that, um, you know, for a long time, McDonald's was, you know, saying that it was doing incredible wonders for the Black youth unemployment rate, but we know that it's been a very long time since the majority of people working fast food were young people. You know, fast food workers are not 17 year olds who are just trying to make extra money and need a first job. You know, they're, they're older people, they're middle-aged people who are trying to raise families. And so I think that that perception that McDonald's can be a lifesaver in communities that don't have jobs, like those days are over and people are asking questions about accountability and the quality of work. And now, now that you're kind of done with the book and you say, I know it was probably a very weird, uh, weird book tour and with COVID making everything in the world so strange. Uh, but I was just wondering kind of like, are you done pursuing McDonald's scholarship? Do you have any like future projects? I know at various points you've mentioned a few ideas that you kind of wish you had addressed a little bit more or like would love to explore a little deeper. So are there any McDonald's related projects in the future? You know, I don't know. It's like fast food is such a part of my life that I think it would be really hard for me to ever like not think about the industry. And um, I recently produced and wrote two episodes of the podcast Proof where I talk about the fast food brands that have disappeared from public consciousness, which was really fun to talk about the very different reasons why some fast food restaurants survive and why others don't. Um, you know, I'm interested in the ways that the fast food industry has also tried to reach out to other communities of color, having learned from how to do it with McDonald's. So I think fast food will always be an area of inquiry for me. I don't know if I'll write another book like Franchise, but I do like to think about how I can be creative in finding these elements of our culture that a lot of people are familiar with or that are really accessible in order to tell more complex stories about how race and power and capitalism intersect. And do you think McDonald's is sort of a paradigmatic of fast food franchise or fast food industry as a whole? Or do you think you'd get a very different kind of set of histories if you dove into Taco Bell or something like that? And you do talk about other, other brands as well throughout the book, but I was wondering if those histories are fairly similar or if you'd get a whole new kind of wealth of questions. You know, McDonald's kind of set the standard um, in many ways. And even though other fast food brands might exceed it in sales or popularity, McDonald's kind of gave us a blueprint on how you create a franchise, how you market to children, how mm -hmm. do you um, 
how you do all of these things. And so I think that everyone is kind of in the shadow of McDonald's. And so I think if I were to write this book about any other kind of any of the fast food brands, there would be a lot of elements of the McDonald's story in their story as well. No, that make that makes sense. And I think kind of last uh, last kind of topic I wanted to touch on, actually not related to McDonald's, but mm-hmm. uh, related to an article you wrote for the Chronicle of Higher Education in 2018. Uh, you wrote about sort of the importance of universities helping students, uh, first generation students, especially in students of color, master what you called the hidden curriculum. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you meant by the hidden curriculum, and then also how that might have shifted in the age of, you know, Zoom, Zoom education. Oh, that's a, that's a good um, point. Yeah, you know, I was very fortunate to be invited to join the folks at the Georgetown Scholar Program to develop a course for first-generation college students called Mastering the Hidden Curriculum. And it's predicated on this idea that there are all, there's all sorts of information and insights that um, students have about kind of being who they are in, in higher education and higher education not recognizing that some of these things are assumptions that we make about students and we proceed from those places of assumptions. And so the hidden curriculum is a set of spoken and unspoken rules about how you're supposed to um, proceed with talking to professors, terms that are very much um, specific to higher ed that no one else talks about. So if you don't know and you don't have someone who can tell you, then I guess you just don't know that information. So I think the goal of this is to say that, yes, there are some real um, things that are kept from you and how can we share that information and how can we make sure that that information is available or that information is explained so people don't feel on the outside uh, when they're coming into something as important as their college career. Like there's this kind of hidden set of norms and unspoken rules that, no, that makes complete sense. And do you think it's, do you get the impression that it shifted at all in terms of like transition to digital education or is, have they kind of remained the same? I don't know, it might Um, be too soon to tell, but. I think with digital education, we start to see, um, you know, the, the types of privileges that are associated with the conditions that are conducive to study. And so virtual only works if you have very good internet. And if you have technology and backup technology and you have a quiet place in which to take your classes and a quiet place to study and, you know, three meals a day and, you know, heat and um, electricity, because, you know, for our most vulnerable students, a lot of them, when they are in college, they're at their most kind of stable in terms of having an opportunity to actually enjoy the comforts of a pretty stable address and food and all of these things. And so even though we can replicate the learning experience to a degree when we have them with us in person, we lose sight that they depend on so many other resources that are embedded in the residential college experience. And when they don't have access to it, their learning is almost impossible. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think I see that on every level of education, whether it's uh, early childhood or middle schools or yeah, public schools everywhere. So, well, thank you so much. That's actually all the questions I have. So I just appreciate you coming in today and talking with me.
Absolutely, Jake. Thank you so much for staying curious and I can't wait to hear our conversation.